Hello, hello everyone. This is Erin and this is another episode of Causes or Cures. It's just me today. I don't have a guest. My dog Barnaby is here, so maybe he will say hello at some point during the podcast. Um, so, you know, on Causes or Cures, I like to talk about things uh, as a cause or a cure for a health issue, you know, because a lot of things can be um, presented as both, really, really. So today I'm going to talk about risk communication. So effective risk communication is acknowledged as the pillar of a coordinated response to an outbreak. So if anything gets in the way of that, it's going to affect how we deal with the outbreak or how the outbreak deals with us, right? So I'm going to talk about risk communication, how I think we messed it up. Uh, we created a lot of inconsistencies from the government, public health officials, from the media, uh, to how people were talking about it on social media, and how this ties into bias, mainly political bias, industry bias, maybe your individual biases, and then how this impacts the public's behavior, meaning uh, are you going to wear a face mask? Are you going to social distance? Are you going to be hesitant when the vaccine finally gets here and they're working hard on a vaccine? So inconsistencies in messaging. Now, depending on who you asked, depending on what you heard, maybe you've noticed some of the inconsistencies. Maybe you've noticed some of the conflict in how people are interpreting messaging, who says what, um, you know, from the very beginning. Some states we need to shut down, others we're not going to shut down. It's bad, it's not that bad. It's bad for some people, the elderly, uh, but it's not bad for the young. We need to, you know, shut down everything. We don't need to shut down everything, just some things. Um, you're going to kill the economy, or we're not killing the economy. So, I mean, it was just, it was all over the place. And for the most part, I think the, the public health officials really tried to stress the importance of um, you know, responding strongly to the pandemic, especially in the beginning, given all of the virus characteristics, what they knew about it. Obviously, information will change during a pandemic. Uh, new data will come in. Um, are not the, the viral reproductive rate, meaning if one person has it, how many more people are going get to get it after that? That might change during a pandemic. Well, it will change. It might be high, and then you want it to get closer to one, which which is good. So, uh, and more people will become immune. So the data and the recommendations will change. I want people to understand that. Um, you know, it's it, there's nothing to get angry about. Like, well, why are they telling us to do this now and not that? Because the susceptible population or who can get the virus may have changed. Um, who's immune, that may have changed. And um, they're learning more and more about the virus. So the recommendations should change based on that. But where, where I noticed there seemed to be, I'd say, a, an, an issue with, with where I saw a flip, where I, where I saw a definite switch in the public health message was right, right around when the horrific and uh, just awful death of George Floyd that we all saw, and um, then people became, rightly so, incredibly angry, and they were, everybody took to the streets, and they were marching um, against police brutality 
um, and against systemic racism. And I, I want to emphasize clearly for all that there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I think, you know, I mean, well, first of all, everybody, we have a right to, it's our right to protest. So we should, we should be, you should be out there in the streets um, when you see something so egregiously wrong and um, you can't just sit still, you have to do something. So social justice and fighting for that is important. And there is, we see a massive movement unfolding um, to address another public health, health issue, which is racism. And, and that exists in our country, that exists all over the world. And you might call that a bigger issue than the people dying from COVID-19. Um, and you might say, I'm not an expert on systemic racism and I'm learning and, and just as much as everybody should be um, during this time period. Um, but you know, we have to think about too how COVID-19 is affecting black Americans. Um, they're dying from COVID-19 more than any other group in our country. They are 2.5 times as likely to die from COVID-19 than white Americans. And in some parts of the country, it's higher than that. In at least 16 states, their share of the COVID-19 deaths is greater than their share of the population. Um, and people always say, oh, why, why is that? You know, and well, you know, uh, oftentimes they live in crowded and underserved areas that predispose them to long-term health conditions like obesity and high blood pressure, both of those linked to increased mortality from COVID-19. And, you know, you might live in areas that are food swamps where there's just access to, to junk food or there's food deserts where they, there's not enough access to local organic food, which is a problem. So I'm not here to tell people that they're wrong and that you shouldn't be protesting. But given a pandemic, a pandemic, a virus, that can't think, doesn't care, doesn't rationalize, just sees a group of people and like, yeah. Um, the public health message of increased risk of viral transmission in large dense groups never should have been muffled. It should have been amplified. The message that face masks only reduce risk and are not 100% preventive shouldn't have been muffled. It should have been amplified. New research. For example, that the spread of COVID-19 doesn't significantly slow down in warmer temperatures when susceptibility in the population remains high, or that antibodies might not last as long as we'd like them to uh, in recovered uh, COVID-19 patients, that shouldn't have been ignored. It should have been amplified. I was on Twitter, like we all are, which is probably not good for our mental health, but that's another podcast. And I cringed when I came across a Politico article and the headline was suddenly public health officials say social justice matters more than social distance and listen the word suddenly really bothered me because it's not only unscientific but it plays into the COVID-19 deniers claims that the pandemic disappeared like magic when the protest started and who knew riots could cure COVID-19? So while, while the article is more nuanced than that, we know people only read headlines today. And I also couldn't understand, why would you turn it into a comparison? Because it read like an opinion, right? Not something supported by data. It was an opinion. 
And they could have just as easily said, hey, both matter, both really matter. And then what happened? Well, people picked up on the inconsistency in messaging. The media was more focused on the protests. The pandemic seemed to take a back seat. I'm not saying everybody again, but I think in general, it's, it's safe to say that it did. And then people started to get angry. The people who didn't want to listen to the public health messages from the beginning, who may have felt it was a violation of their personal liberties, who didn't think the virus was as big a deal as they were making it. So what, what did they do with this information? These, these, this other group of people that we have to share our country with, and um, like I said, the virus doesn't care what our political or personal beliefs are, it just sees a person, it was like, oh yeah, there you go, I'm gonna infect you. So what did those people say? Why wasn't I allowed to wear a mask and have a funeral for my father, but thousands of people can form large groups and protest? Why wasn't I able to attend the birth of my child, but thousands of people can form large groups and protest? Why did I lose my small business? The people are out there protesting and they're not social distancing. Why wasn't I able to say goodbye to my dying mother, but people are out there protesting? Hey, why are you calling me a killer for trying to work and save my business and make money, but thousands of people are out there protesting during a pandemic? And this is why this type of reaction, I think, uh, was totally predictable. Um, and uh, the, again, it goes back to what I, what I stated. Risk communication is the most important thing when it comes to uh, controlling an outbreak. So any kind of inconsistency like that, uh, well, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. We should have said it's just it's as important. Both are important. But guess what? The public health recommendations stay the same. Um, you're, you're still at a very high risk of getting this virus. So make sure you know that risk if you go out there and protest. And if you're not social distancing and you're close together in crowds, you are at a higher risk. Um, I just don't think some people, like I said, some people said it, but it wasn't emphasized enough. So what, what do I think happened? And this is my podcast. This is my opinion, but uh, this is what I think. I think we let our own biases influence our messaging from the top down. I want to say a note on bias. I don't think there's anything wrong with bias. I don't think there's a way around it. Uh, I think we all have biases. But, and, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as we acknowledge what our bias is. If, and this, this has to do with being mindful. Like if I am biased, and I will say this, um, <laughs> I am biased against something like say, um, psychiatric medication, which I had a bad experience on. And I could, I, I could feel that bias inside me. I have to recognize that and keep it in check when I'm analyzing something that has to do with psychiatric medication. So my opinion and my bias doesn't influence the objective reality in front of me um, or what someone else might be telling me. So you just need to recognize the bias. Dr. Fauci, who, you know, our top ID doctor, who's out there doing a lot of great work and taking man a lot of fire um he said you know he was he was concerned about how we would respond to a vaccine and and, and he said well or you know how, how we would respond to the pandemic going forward 
And he said, well, there's an anti-science bias in the United States. And I think he's right, but I also think we need to keep it real. There's an anti-science bias because of an industry-biased science. And I know everyone's like, well, science is science. Yeah, ideally it should be, and, and religion is religion, but uh, when humans get their hands on things and, and manipulate them for whatever motives they may have, um, sometimes science doesn't become science and it becomes something more sinister, same thing with religion. And we also have political biases. I mean, there is no denying that. Uh, and it's strong. Uh, people have very strong individual political biases today. They're constantly clashing. I mean, we see it on social media. Everybody is fighting the right versus the left, right? Basically, that's what social media has devolved into. I mean, there's a few pictures of families and babies and dogs and cats um, and maybe job promotions. But most of the time, it's political posts. And if you were going to uh, stratify the data, you'd be like, yep, right, left, right, left. And they follow certain ideologies. And there's also a bias in the news. And I'm really disappointed by this, but I definitely have noticed it more and more over the years. Um, what that means is that it's hard to know what news source to trust. So before I read an article, um, again, I check biases. So if I'm reading the New York Times, I'm like, okay, left, Fox News, okay, right. CNN, middle, but definitely increasingly left. Uh, and I do that with, with every article I read because every media source does have a political bias. I, 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 um, that is my opinion, but I think that's, that's, well, it's kind of obvious. Anyways, so we have to talk about these biases to understand why consistency in public health messaging is more important than ever. Because it's going to affect whether or not people listen, where they wear a face mask or get a vaccine. And I want to talk about vaccines because I said um, when people were, when I saw the inconsistencies in messaging coming through, I said, all right, all you public health people who are changing your tune on the dangers of this pandemic around the protest, don't cry. And I'm putting you on mute when you start complaining about the anti-vax movement in a few months. So let's talk about vaccine hesitancy um, related to this. Now, vaccine hesitancy is not the same thing as being against all vaccines. It means you're hesitant. Um, the World Health Organization said it was a top 10 threat to global health in 2019. Um, it's a bit of a, some may call it a privileged position because, you know, if, if there was something out there that would kill you on the spot, um, there was no recovering from it, there probably would be less vaccine hesitancy, right? Like if you knew you were going to be infected with a virus that was going to make you bleed out of your skin and die in two days, you'd probably get a vaccine. But if there was a higher chance of you recovering from something um, based on modern day technology and, and clean water and all the resources we have, you may be privileged enough in that position to say, I don't need a vaccine. And we're going to do a whole podcast on vaccine hesitancy next week. But vaccine hesitancy is increasing. In 2017-2018 period, only 37% of adults got the flu vaccine. Um, 
We had the measles outbreak, right? And so we, we know that vaccine hesitancy uh, definitely is out there and it can lead to outbreaks or not getting vaccinated. Recently, I chatted with Dr. Linda Thunstrom. She is an economist at the University of Wyoming um, who, and she did a cost benefit analysis. Uh, she does a lot of them, but I read a paper she recently published called Hesitancy Towards a COVID-19 Vaccine and Prospects for Herd Immunity. Now, herd immunity uh, just means that enough of the population is going to be immune, whether it be because of antibodies or because of a vaccine, they're going to be immune to getting COVID-19. So that's what herd immunity really means. So she did this, this study and she um, asked a group of people that were participating in the study and and the people who were hesitant about getting a COVID-19 vaccine, um, of them, 82% said they were concerned about the novelty, they were concerned about side effects. She also discovered that people who didn't trust the government were more likely not to get the vaccine. Uh, so that's something to consider when we consider also how industry influences our government, right? Um, this is all related, guys, it's all related. And then she also discovered in her study that depending on how the White House portrayed the virus, whether it was a low probability of infection or a high probability, people responded differently to um, whether or not they'd get the vaccine. So if the White House said you have a high probability of getting infected, more people would be likely to get the vaccine versus if the White House said you have a low probability of getting infected, then fewer people would get the vaccine. So I want to go back to that. If people don't trust the government, they're less likely to get a vaccine. Um, I think that's interesting because that's going to tie into industry bias and political bias, right? So let, let's just talk about industry bias first and why I think, again, this goes back to why I think we need to be consistent with our public health messaging, especially today. So in the 1980s, there was the Bayh-Dole Act, which allowed for universities and small businesses to patent discoveries made from research funded by the NIH, meaning tax funded. Before then, all of this was in the public domain. Similar legislation was passed to allow for the NIH to enter into deals with drug companies. Um, so then there became a direct connection between NIH discoveries and industry. These were called technology transfers, basically, and a lot of universities have offices set up today um, called technology transfer offices. What this also meant was that drug companies didn't have to rely on their own research. They could rely on the medical schools and the, and the universities to do it. And what eventually happened, and what listen, I just want to say that the, the Bayh-Dole Act um, during the Reagan period, it was, it wasn't to the intent wasn't to give industry all this power. The intent was to increase our drug development and our medical device development because we were behind and we weren't doing much. So it was really the intent was to boost that, um, you know, uh, industrial entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak. But like anything, it, it went too far. So so what happened? Um, well, there was a pro-industry bias in medical research. That was clear. And when there is a pro-industry bias in medical research, 
that you know those result in studies that are written up as papers and those papers get sent to top journals after they're peer reviewed reviewed by peers in the field and they get published and doctors read those healthcare providers read those and what what is in them is going to affect how people administer care in some cases and it may affect the standards of care and um, so that's a strong industry bias right another act that was passed um, that favored industry was the Hatch-Waxman Act and that extended monopoly rights for brand name drugs and so now I mean drug companies now what they do is they put they have a couple patents on a drug and then they they get extended patents and the list of extended patents can be quite extensive so they can have exclusive rights over a drug for a long time which makes them able to drive up the price and um, it just makes it a very lucrative field right and and they have to get the doctors on board with that drug so that's why they send out representative drug reps to doctor offices clinics take this drug that's this is an amazing drug I'm not saying it's not I'm not saying it's not an amazing drug but uh, I'm just pointing out the avenues for industry bias right and then if you looked at the budget um, for drug companies, what they were spending on, uh, there was a lot more money being spent on marketing than there was on R&D, research and development. So a big portion of their budget went to marketing. And I'm not afraid to say that, you know, as a when I did some medical writing, I wrote ads um, and uh, I wrote paper. I did some ghost writing for doctors um, their name was on it, mine wasn't. And so the, the field of, of marketing here um, related to drug companies, it's extensive, it's elaborate. And again, it's because this goes back to, uh, it's a very profitable business. And the reason I'm driving home this point about industry bias is because when people, consumers, average Janes and Joes, they pick up on this, that will create distrust. Meaning, are you recommending this to me because uh, this drug company told you to? How can I trust you? How do I know this is not all just for profit on your end and you're not putting my health first? So that's why I'm pointing, that's why I'm driving home industry bias. Um, and so, the, and this type of, because there is this bias and because people have started to notice this, um, there's different organizations that have formed to, to try to hold doctors or government drug companies accountable. For example, the organization Open Secrets tracks money in politics. Everybody knows that drug companies are a powerful lobby, right? Open Secrets recently unveiled that in 2018, drug companies spent $200 million on lobbying alone, lobbying to our government. The organization ProPublica tracks how much money drug companies give to doctors. In one of their recent reports that I read, they showed that at least 2,500 physicians had received half a million dollars from drug and medical device companies, and 700 of them received at least $1 million. And let's talk about the news cycle. There's always a story circulating about a drug company being sued for an unreported drug or product side effect, or for doing something shady with pricing. Um, I recently read that the state attorney generals are suing generic drug companies for conspiring to raise the prices of generic drugs. Uh, three weeks ago, Johnson & Johnson had to stop talc-based baby powder sales due to its link to ovarian cancer. 
And I and and something really interesting. I just read an article in a journal about industry payments to physician journal editors. And why is that important? Because that dictates what gets put in the top medical journals and what dictates the standards of care and what eventually what patients get, right? What sort of care that they get. So that article concluded that a substantial minority of physician editors receive payments from industry within any given year, and sometimes the amount of money was high. Most editors received payment of some kind during the four-year study period. The study was four years. So are they being influenced by industry? Well, I mean, if you if you pay someone money, um, usually that's all it takes to be a little influenced. Continuing medical education. Most of that, and, and you know, those are required classes that healthcare providers have to take. A lot of that is industry sponsored. So uh, if you think that in those classes, there's not a um, plug for their drug, you're wrong because I've written a lot of those. In Nature, the journal um, in 2005, which you know was 15 years ago now, but they did a study that showed, and this is really interesting to me, one third of authors who write practice guidelines in the United States had ties to the pharmaceutical industry. One third, that's a lot. They're writing our guidelines, what we do for people. Prescribing habits, there's definitely, there's definitely evidence to show that industry payments to doctors influence their prescribing habits. So let's take a deep breath and think about all that, right? We have, uh, we already have the political bias, we have the, the industry bias, and, and then on top of that, we have inconsistencies in health messaging. Hmm, what, how do you think people are gonna respond? Do you think they're gonna trust you? Do you think they're gonna do what you say? Now, traditional healthcare workers go crazy when they see negative messages about vaccines. Sometimes they go crazy if they see messages of anything that's critical of the, of the traditional healthcare system. And boy, do they grumble when people turn to Facebook groups and the essential oils enthusiasts and the health gurus, the national health, the natural health experts, um, you know, on social media giving out health advice. But do they pause to ask themselves why people are doing that? Yes, the democratic sharing of information via the internet is part of it. Anybody with a following and the right amount of bells and whistles, you know, can say something and someone out there is going to believe them and do what they say. Sure. But it's also a great distrust in a conventional system that has been caught time and time again putting profit or putting industry over people. I point this out in my new parody, Yours in Wellness, Crystal Healing, Letters from the Wellness Industry. Now, it's a comedy um, because that's, I felt that was the best avenue to deliver the message I wanted to deliver that people probably hear all the time, but they just don't get it. So it's a comedy that pokes fun at the luxurious supplement poppin', always detoxin', always superfoodin', trillion-dollar wellness industry. But the biggest marketing tool for those guys is the growing distrust in the trillion-dollar industry-biased conventional healthcare system and its ever-growing list of scandals. Inconsistency in health messaging fuels that distrust, also fuels that distrust. 
And I don't have to tell you this. If you're being honest with yourselves, just take a virtual stroll through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you'll see what I mean. Now, if public health officials rationalize their silence to address the inconsistent messaging, well, the protest was more important, or it is more important. You know, on many levels, I agree with them. Eradicating racism might be the most important public health goal we as a world could accomplish. But the virus doesn't care. We care. The virus doesn't rationalize. We do. The virus doesn't think we do. So given all of this other stuff to help salvage the public's trust, at least admit that the pandemic public health messaging should have remained consistent, objective, and only based on the characteristics of the new virus. And maybe it's too late this time. I know we're not really a society that likes to do do-overs. We're sort of a cancel society, cancel everything, throw the baby out with the bathwater type of society, uh, which in itself is probably a public health disaster in the making. But maybe going forward, we can think about how all of these things interact with one another. Industry, politics, government, public health, and how people respond. Maybe in the future, we can improve it. Anyhow, that was today's podcast rant. Uh, I want people to really think about risk communication, its delivery, how it's received. And in closing, what I wanted to do was share a chapter from Yours in Wellness, Crystal Healing Letters from the Wellness Industry. Uh, it's available as an audiobook. I didn't narrate it. Ellen Cohn narrated it. I'm going to include a letter from that book just so you guys can get a feel for it. Uh, it's satire. I hope you guys listen to it or read it. But this is the second letter in the book that I'm sharing um, it also includes drawings, but in the audiobook, Ellen describes the drawings, which I thought worked out really well. But you can also, the audiobook is available in a lot of different places, and um, the ebook and the audiobook is also available on Amazon, of course. And here's Ellen. Okay, so I almost forgot to actually tell you guys what the book is about. Um, it's a satire on the wellness industry, but it totally, totally, totally relates to the topic here in this blog about risk and health communication. Um, so I'm just gonna read the back of the book for you really fast so you have some background before you listen to the letter, the sample. Crystal Healing is the CEO of Verdant Corpora, a boutique wellness brand, and when she writes an email to her brand ambassadors, she doesn't pull her punches. If I catch any of you appealing to the broke and not the woke, you will no longer represent our brand. She writes in one of her trademark missives. Holding tight to the reins of the power Crystal wields in the world of supplements, detoxes, and new age therapies, she crisply and methodically instructs her wellness ambassadors on the do's and many don'ts of the luxurious wellness industry. In a series of letters, Crystal responds to her team's legitimate concerns, such as questionable supplement ingredients and lack of scientific evidence for their product claims, while always pointing out why Verdant Corpora is far more ethical than Big Pharma, an industry of profit hounds and data manipulators. Healing's underlings fall like flies as they unwittingly commit one solecism after another, falling short of the Paltrowian ideas to which healing so ardently aspires. 
principles that she herself cannot consistently achieve. Letter 2. The Scientific Method Doesn't Matter Dear Wellness Ambassadors, Please, stop asking me for links to the scientific studies on the products we peddle. You annoy me when you do this, and frankly, there are none. So stop it. One nerdy grasshopper had the nerve to email me information on the scientific method and why a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial is the gold standard of evidence. He went on to write that evidence matters, and he feels uncomfortable claiming a product works when the product hasn't been tested via the scientific method. That uncomfortable grasshopper was squished. Now, I am a scholar by every sense of the word and have a deep respect for the scientific method. But we don't need it here, and it only hurts our brand. Our target market doesn't care about the scientific method, and zero regulatory bodies require us to use it. Hence, we can say whatever we want. Isn't that liberating? Some of you have expressed discomfort over our lack of quality evidence, but perhaps I can reassure you, we do use the scientific method. Well, only the first step, observation, but that's the only step we need. We observe and listen to certain people. When people say a specific plant, herb, oil, berry, or mushroom helps an ailment, we pounce on it. We get it to our manufacturing plant, package it neatly in a credible-looking bottle or box, market it for whatever ailment so-and-so said it cured, and we sell it. Yes, anecdotes are our bread and butter. Anecdotes, ranging from what your grandmother told you works for indigestion and what the cashier at your local gas station uses for warts to what the yoga teacher on the subway uses for yeast infections. We take anecdotes and the occasional case study published in a journal that looks somewhat professional and turn them into profits. Mr. Squished Grasshopper argued that this was unethical, but he was dead wrong, hence the squishing. Some of our anecdote-based products will work for some people. Just because a product isn't tested in a controlled laboratory environment doesn't mean it doesn't work. There are a lot of cures in nature that are untested. Are you even aware of how much a randomized controlled trial costs? Thousands of dollars! Do you think Verdant Corpora has that kind of money for every product? Do you think I had that kind of money when I launched my first IBS product in my grandmother's basement? No, I did not. Though I cannot say this for many of our competing brands... We don't make extravagant, dangerous, or ridiculous claims. Take eternal jejunity. Those shysters are selling a vinegar-based capsule for colon cancer and compression socks with magnets for dementia. Remember Dr. Sencio Bonham? He got sued for telling a man to steam away his hemorrhoids. The man set his afflicted arse on fire, and he still can't sit to this day. Then there was that naturalist with the long white beard who made YouTube videos about natural cures. He went to prison for telling a kid with type 1 diabetes to stop taking insulin and just drink an herbal tea mix instead. The kid died. 
You can call my wellness company a lot of things, but unethical isn't one of them. We don't claim to cure serious or terminal illnesses. We make products for the occasional bellyache, the stress-induced headache, the occasional fatigue, the episodic dry eye or vagina, and the odd pain syndromes that conventional medicine is clueless about anyway. We make products for brighter, plumper, and younger skin. Because the anti-aging market is a damn gold mine. It's not our fault the wellness industry is like the lawless Wild West, but we'd be stupid to not make hay while the sun shines. Do you like your big paychecks and holiday bonuses? Do you want to pay back your student loans? I thought you might. If you're still struggling with this superfluous moral dilemma, let me offer this. A big reason the wellness and natural product industry is booming is because drug companies exploit the scientific method for their own profit, and consumers have figured this out. Before a drug is approved for use, the loathsome Food and Drug Administration requires drug companies to conduct and publish randomized, controlled trials that show the drug is safe and works. An approved drug can make billions for a company. Don't forget about the long list of inevitable, ridiculous secondary patents that essentially turns the company into a monopoly. Ambassadors, I trust that you aren't so naive to see where I'm going with this. The prospect of exorbitant amounts of money and monopolistic control of a market for many years has the power to corrupt us all. Drug companies are no exception. In fact, they're the worst. They've been known to hide drug trials that show negative results. They spend millions on marketing, only a tiny fraction of their budget goes to research and development, and dress up their drug claims with friendly, optimistic, and appealing language that encourages everyday people to ask their doctors for the drug. They've manipulated data and downplayed the seriousness of side effects, especially long-term side effects. Need I remind you of the drug companies currently being sued for hiding the addictive nature of opioids and fueling a nationwide epidemic that's killed thousands of people? What about the company that makes a popular cholesterol-lowering medication and its links to debilitating muscle pain? What about the company that makes benzodiazepines and didn't tell customers about how awful withdrawal is? Then there's the drug company that makes antidepressants that not only comes with wicked withdrawal symptoms, but have caused kids to kill themselves. Remember the drug company that made the inside Vioxx that caused heart attacks in over 140,000 people? I could continue, but you're probably smart enough to catch my drift by now. The drug companies, the foundation of Western medicine, have tainted the scientific method, thereby making millions of people lose faith in it. People don't trust Big Pharma nor the science they produce. The goal of a drug company is not good science but good profits, and they consistently cherry-pick data that supports this goal. Since we're on the topic of ethics, it doesn't help that pharmaceutical companies have the largest lobbying power in D.C. and spend millions to ensure our elected officials govern in their favor. So, to my as-yet-unsquished grasshoppers— While wellness companies may ignore the scientific method altogether, never forget that Big Pharma abuses it to create a dangerous and addicting pill factory while the government looks the other way. The scientific method is only pure in theory. Relative to Big Pharma, we are the ethical ones. Real quick, I'd like to address something personal. 
I'm aware that one of you caught me vaping the other day outside company headquarters. I shouldn't say caught because that implies I was doing something wrong or anti-wellness. By caught, I mean saw. One of you saw me vaping, and I saw that you saw. I don't know if this occurrence is related to the anti-vaping literature that was slid under my office door this morning, but if so, I'd like to address it. I occasionally vape to reduce anxiety. It helps with tension in my upper back and nervous jitters that I've had since I was a child. I am aware that vaping is linked to a mysterious deadly lung illness, but I can assure you that I completely trust the company that makes my vape device. I understand that company policy for anxiety is long runs through the woods followed by deep breathing exercises, but I sprained my ankle a few weeks ago. I slipped on a leaf and heard a popping sound from my left ankle, which subsequently blew up to the size of a bowling ball. I'm not making excuses for my vaping. However, I can assure you that it's only temporary and utterly harmless. My insurance company still hasn't approved physical therapy for my ankle, but once it does, I will be back to running in no time. I'd appreciate if you all moved on from this incident to more important things like selling our products. Our top five sellers get a generous bonus. Yours in wellness, Crystal Healing, CEO of Verdant Corpora. P.S. Always, always capitalize the word wellness in your communication with customers and each other and certainly with me. Treat it like God. Illustration two is of a man standing with a shovel over a freshly dug hole. He has a satisfactory smile on his face and is wearing jeans and a yellow t-shirt with the words You Drop Drug Co. written across the front. Inside the hole is the word data. The caption reads, On his day off, Jim buried the data. Illustration 3 is of a makeshift altar with a sign out front that says, Church of Wellness. Above the altar, smack in the center, is the word anecdote, as if that's what's being worshipped. Out front, across from the Church of Wellness sign, is an overflowing trash can. In the trash can is a large sign that says, The Scientific Method. <laughs>